Greetings and welcome to New Books in History. I'm your host, Monica Black. At New Books in History, as you know, we keep our eyes peeled for exciting and important new books, books the world needs to know about, and we interview their authors. Today, I have the distinct pleasure of speaking with James Q. Whitman, Ford Foundation Professor of Comparative and Foreign Law at Yale Law School. James Whitman has just published Hitler's American Model, The United States and the Making of Nazi Race Law. Uh, It just came out very recently with, with Princeton University Press. And what the book shows really needs to be much more widely appreciated than it is. That explicitly racist law was not an aberration of the Jim Crow South, and the United States was the global pioneer of racist law law that intended very specifically to deny the full citizenship of some members of society and intended to privilege some members of society over others on the basis of race. And this has had lasting consequences for the nation's history. Long before the Nazi party in Germany was even conceived of, the United States provided models of unequal citizenship, which were later eagerly taken up by radical Nazi lawyers. So that's sort of the, that's the major theme of, of James's book. And James, thank you for being with us today. Hello. Thank you for having me. And thank you for that fine summary of the, the big claims of the book. I appreciate it. Absolutely. It's great to have a chance to talk with you. I wonder if we can please get things started by asking you a bit about your scholarly biography and perhaps particularly how your specific legal historical specialty might have influenced this choice of of topic? Sure. I I have a PhD in history uh, uh, and did my first book, my dissertation on on German legal history, uh, and have maintained an interest in European law ever since, although I became a law professor. uh, um, I've written quite a bit about uh, European legal history generally, and always especially about Germany. German legal culture is really particularly fascinating among the legal cultures of the world, particularly sophisticated and, and, uh, and a particular source for, for deep thoughts about the law for anybody from any, any culture. Uh, so I've stuck with Germany for many, many years now, uh, although, of course, as a professor in an American law school, uh, I've had to develop quite an interest in American law as well. So can you tell us then how you, how you came specifically to this topic? Sure. I was interested in a question that's interested plenty of people, uh, which is whether uh, American Jim Crow had influenced the Nazis. It's a natural question, after all. The view of of everybody who looked at the question was that there was no influence or no meaningful influence uh, running from the U.S. to the Nazis. Partly, I think, because it was hard for anybody to imagine that the Nazis would have wanted to learn lessons about racism from anybody else. What could the Nazis need? Uh, Why why would the Nazis need to study the U.S. or any other country? Um, Historians knew, and, and lawyers too, for that matter, about it, knew that the Nazis spoke of America not infrequently in the 1930s. Uh, but the general view was that when the Nazis mentioned American race law, it was just a sort of a, 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 a hypocritical effort to uh, uh, improve the image of Germany on the international scene by uh, disingenuously citing a, a seeming but uh, a parallel that was not really a parallel at all. Uh, I assumed this was true, too, uh, since I'd seen it in the literature. But I began digging and found that there was more to the story, to put it mildly, than that. Um, in particular, I, I was interested in, more broadly, in fact, in the, in the international diffusion of racist law, racist schemes, racial hierarchy, uh, 
and I thought to do something that seemed the natural thing to do in looking at Germany, which is to take Mein Kampf off the shelf uh, at the library. Right, and it was right. there that I found the striking passage that's occasionally been quoted, but not much discussed, in which Hitler declared in the second volume of Mein Kampf that the United States was the one state that had made progress toward creating a healthy racial order. That seemed striking to me. Yeah. Uh, and I, I thought there might be more there than I had seen elsewhere. And I began digging uh, and found quite a great deal, really. Yes, you did find quite a great deal. I would, I would agree with that statement. You know, when I first read about your book, um, maybe in a journal, but I can't remember exactly where now, first saw the title, I thought immediately about uh, the scholar Stefan Kuhl's book, which is called The Nazi Connection. And I'm, I mentioned this, and of course you, 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 you mentioned Stefan Kuhl's book as well in, in yours, I mention this because I think a lot of people who might listen to this podcast who are German historians might assume, as I did, that the book, you know, Kuhl's work, of course, is about the lively transatlantic dialogue and institutional interaction between the United States and Germany uh, on, on the subject of eugenics. Right. And I thought, well, this perhaps this book is a continuation of the themes of Kuhl's book, but your book is very different. It's really about the creation of racial law in Germany and the way that um, the United States provided a model for the Germans. Well, that's right. I mean, of course, what Kuhl has to say is entirely correct. It's true that the Nazis were very interested in American eugenics. Uh, and, of course, some of the interest in American law was an interest in the eugenic, the eugenics aspect of American law, but there was much more to it than that. American race law was not just about the great eugenic goal of creating a, a, a healthy uh, race. It was also about forms of legal degradation in particular, uh, about the creation of forms of second-class citizenship, uh, things that are obviously very much present in Jim Crow, but present uh, in other aspects of the law too, uh, which don't really have anything to do with eugenics as such. They're about creating different forms of racial hierarchy, really without regard to the question of uh, maintaining race purity exactly. They're about humiliation uh, and uh, matters like that that are fundamentally important for establishing a racist order. Uh, there, the United States, as you said in your, in your lovely uh, uh, summary of the book, the United States was really the world leader in creating law of that kind. And law of that kind was of special interest to the Nazis, especially in the early 1930s. It's important to remember that in the early 30s, uh, the Holocaust was not yet on the horizon. Mass murder just didn't seem in the cards. Uh, the great Nazi interest was in essentially coercing Jews to emigrate uh, through making life uh, in Germany intolerable. That was to be done in large part through creating forms of second-class citizenship for the Jews. And there the Nazis found American models. Yes, that's right. You you say that um, I, I, I wanted to see if you would go a little bit further. You write that for the Nazis, America was not just the South. Um, they Germans who were interested, Nazi jurists who were interested in American racial law um, saw they weren't just looking to, to Southern models. They were actually looking to models that came from across the United States, both at the federal and at the individual state level. Can you can you explain that or, or sort of expand on that a little bit? Gladly. It's, you're absolutely right. Uh, our tendency in America is to think of American racism as a phenomenon of the American South, and particularly as a phenomenon involving the targeting of African Americans. Now, of course, that was all there. Yeah. That was all there, undoubtedly there, but uh, 
American race-based and racist law really had many, many other targets as well. As you say, it was found on a national and nationwide level, not just in the in the South. Uh, the most, uh, the best known variety of American racist law in the world at large was immigration law. American immigration law, which of course was intended particularly to keep uh, Eastern Europeans and Asians out of the United States, most notably in the form of 1921 and 1924 statutes, pardon me, those are the statutes that Hitler was praising in Mein Kampf. Uh, it's not just a matter of immigration law, though. There was a great deal of law uh, whose targets were Asians, uh, Native Americans, uh, and in particular, Filipinos and Puerto Ricans. Uh, that involves uh, an aspect of American law that's mostly forgotten these days. Uh, but as a result of the Spanish-American War, the U.S. acquired something it hadn't had before, colonial possessions, uh, in the form especially Puerto Rico and, 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 and the Philippines. Uh, Americans were entirely unwilling to grant uh, uh, first-class citizenship, as it were, uh, to the inhabitants of those places. Uh, and American lawyers created, uh, in response, a form of second-class citizenship uh, for Filipinos, Puerto Ricans, uh, and additionally for Native Americans. That's a, that's a part of the story uh, that I don't go into in detail in the book. But they did that. These things were of great interest, not just to the Nazis, but to European far-right-wingers much, much, much more broadly. Uh, the same is true of a critical part of American law that we haven't yet discussed, which is American anti-miscegenation law. Uh, that is law banning and criminalizing racially mixed marriage. Anti-miscegenation law, of course, in part was intended uh, uh, to prevent marriages between uh, blacks and whites in the United States, but it also targeted Asians and Native Americans. American, America was a world as it were of a kind of equal opportunity racism in these ways. Uh, and the Nazi lawyers were quite aware of all of that. That's exactly that's exactly what I've got from your book. And, and, and one of the ways in which um, their awareness, I mean, what I was going to say was their awareness helps to contribute to the notorious Nuremberg laws. And so second, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit, explain to, to some of the folks who might be listening um, in a little bit of detail about how sec the American second class citizenship um, that you've just explained uh, the way that the United States pioneered second-class citizenship, how specifically that informed the creation of the Nuremberg Laws. Well, so there, there were two, there were actually three Nuremberg Laws, and there's some interesting and important stories to tell about the, the mostly forgotten uh, third, or actually first, Nuremberg Law. Um, but the two main Nuremberg Laws, the ones we describe as the Nuremberg Laws now, uh, did two things. Uh, the first of them created indeed a, uh, a form of second-class citizenship or imposed a form of second-class citizenship on the German Jewry. Uh, the second of the Nuremberg Laws uh, involved the criminalization of marriage and sex between Jews and, and what the Nazis called Aryans. Um, I'll just start here with the first, since your question's about the first. Uh, in the world at large, as Nazi lawyers were creating these the, the, the program that was eventually uh, put into law at Nuremberg, uh, the United States did indeed represent the most creative and interesting culture uh, when it came to the um, uh, development of forms of second-class citizenship. Now, it's important to recognize that the American creation of forms of second-class citizenship could only have served as a kind of a background inspiration to the Nazis. It could not have uh, been the subject of any kind of direct copying or direct influence, for the most part at least, I, and I've been try, I've tried to be cautious in the book in saying what one can say about uh, the influence of American second-class citizenship law on, uh, on the Nazis. The reason it couldn't easily serve uh, as a direct inspiration to the Nazis is because American second-class citizenship law mostly involved 
various forms of legal subterfuge, uh, particularly when it came to American blacks. The 14th Amendment to the Constitution, uh, that is a post-Civil War amendment, guaranteed citizenship rights to blacks. What that meant is that that, that didn't mean that, that, that blacks, in fact, enjoyed full citizenship in the United States. They didn't by any means. Uh, among other things, they were very importantly deprived of voting rights. That's something we see coming back in the U.S. Uh, in the last couple of decades as well. Uh, uh, they were deprived of voting rights and, and various other uh, disabilities were imposed on the American black population. Um, but all of this had to be done while theoretically preserving their notional constitutional citizenship. Uh, it would have been impossible really for Nazi lawyers to borrow directly from that American program because they had no intention of using that sort of subterfuge. The intention in, from the beginning after the Nazis came to power uh, in the creation of Nazi race law uh, was to quite openly and unapologetically impose second class citizenship status on German Jews. Uh, so that there, in, in that respect, while the U.S. U.S. law, I think, clearly served as an inspiration, uh, it didn't serve as a the kind of direct model uh, that we find when we turn to the question of, of anti-miscegenation, which maybe we'll turn to next. Nevertheless, that it served as an inspiration seems pretty clear when we read the literature surrounding the making of that particular aspect of the Nuremberg Laws. They talked about it all the time. Uh, they knew a great deal about it. The Nazi literature of the period 1933 to 1936, which is the period I focus on in the book, uh, returns turns repeatedly to the American example, partly in immigration law, but also with regard to these, uh, the creation of these forms of second-class citizenship. They discuss it a great deal. Uh, uh, these are matters that show up in particular in uh, a very interesting source, uh, uh, the National Socialist Handbook for Law and Legislation. This is, you know, a um, uh, very, very uh, unsyst as a very as a systematic, but in some ways unsophisticated, doctrinally underdeveloped account of what Nazi lawmakers ought to aim to achieve. Uh, but in the principal article there on creating a race state, uh, uh, the author in question spends a great deal of time, in fact, a quarter of the uh, page length of the article on the American example, and there are many other examples of the same kind. Um, so that it's quite clear that American law stood in the background, but one wants to be careful not to say more than that it stood in the background and seems to have been discussed in a way that suggests an element of inspiration among Nazi lawyers. Yes, no, of course. And I, I do think you're very cautious in the book. And I think I think you you take I, th I think one of the reasons that I found the book so compelling was because of the, um, you know, as a scholar, the enormous care that you take to nuance your claims and um and to make very clear that uh that that these that these that the germans actually were really um interested in comparative law and that so they're they're looking at american race law they're probably looking at all kinds of other things too and I, I wonder if on that note you could explain just a little bit to people who wouldn't be as familiar with the topic as you are why something what was it about the what was it about German legal scholarship that made them eager to look for outside models? Why was that so much a part of the tradition? Well, the Germans were not alone in looking to foreign legislation and drafting new laws. That, sure. that was a common practice. It, it's still a common practice. Yeah. Uh, one, one does it all the time. Uh, in some ways, it has to be said that the Germans compared to other, or German legal culture compared to other legal cultures, was probably relatively resistant to outside influence uh, up until this period. 
uh, we distinguish, if I may not speak as a comparative lawyer, we can distinguish between relatively autonomous legal cultures which resist outside influence and, and relatively uh, heteronomous ones that will accept outside influence. The German, the German legal tradition was a proudly exporting legal tradition through most of the 19th and early 20th century. Uh, other people borrowed German law. Germans didn't borrow from others. I see. That's Never. very interesting. I'm glad you explained that. I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I just wanted to... Uh, please. Uh, so, uh, um, and in that sense, what we see in the material that I've dug up here in this book is is something of an exception in German history. Uh, and in fact, it's worth emphasizing, uh, I don't know if we've said it yet, that the German lawyers who were most, who were the most eager advocates of the American example, were the most radical Nazi lawyers. They were the ones who were cutting ties most dramatically with the German legal tradition that for the most part had resisted this kind of outside influence. Uh, uh, but they sure did look at the American model. And, and I think what's true more broadly is that uh, law reform commissions, uh, there are always law reform commissions in Germany, always made it a practice to do some kind of a study of foreign law. They still make it a practice to do some kind of a study of foreign law. And that was done in this case, too. Uh, and indeed, as you say, the, the, the evidence that we have seems to show that they did look around the world to see what they could find. Uh, what's remarkable is that they settled on the American example as the only one that they could really exploit. That's very fascinating. And yes, and thank you for clarifying that. I did think it was it was interesting so that, that this is somewhat of an anomaly in the 1930s. And al along those lines, um, I thought it might be interesting for people to hear um, about some of the ways in which, I mean, um, of course, uh, as you describe, uh, German legal theorists and lawyers are looking at texts, but they're also, in some cases, I'm thinking about the case of um, the man who came to the University of Arkansas and studied at the University of Arkansas Law School for a couple of years, Heinrich Krieger, I think it Krieger. was. I wonder if you could talk about him. I mean, I thought that was just a fascinating example of a man who came from Germany to the United States and studied the law here and then goes back to Germany um, with a great knowledge of both both legal cultures and has and plays quite a large role in the in some of the the struggles that you're talking about yeah i think a critical role and he is absolutely fascinating i've done my best to dig up what i could about him uh heinrich krieger was uh an exchange student at the university of arkansas in 33 uh, what a time for a young nazi not to be in germany but mm. what can you say uh he was there in 33 and then came back uh i presumably at the end of the spring semester in 1934 uh, he was certainly a committed Nazi, uh, certainly a committed Nazi, uh, but he was, as you say, quite extraordinarily knowledgeable about American law. He even wrote a very good American Law Review article. This is not something very many foreigners managed to do. The American Law Review article uh, was about American Indian law. Now, and it, 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 I have to say, one doesn't like to find oneself uh, defending the abilities of Nazi lawyers, but it's quite a good article. <laughs> he was a very fine lawyer. Uh, uh, the, the, the conclusion that he tries to, uh, uh, the conclusion that he draws in the article is that American Indian law, for all of its contradictions, really has one ultimate great unarticulated aim, that is to uh, guarantee that the Indians, American, Native Americans, as we say, we call it American Indian law, uh, that, uh, that everybody should understand that Native Americans are a separate race who must be uh, 
kept out of contact with the majority population and treated uh, under a separate legal regime. Uh, the insistence in the article is that, in fact, although nobody ever says so, American Indian law is all about racism. Now, it's not stupid to say American Indian law is all about racism. That's not a foolish thing to say at all. The uh, unsettling aspect of the article, of course, is that, uh, although we haven't talked about it now, uh, many Nazis from Hitler on regarded the American treatment of Native Americans as an inspiration, too. That must have been what drew him to the topic. Mm, that's right. At any rate, he returned to Germany in 1934 uh, and was, as far as one can tell, uh, a, a little-known research associate at a Nazi research institute. In the summer of 1934, though, uh, as the drafting process that eventually led to the Nuremberg Laws got underway, it's clear that there was a great deal of interest in finding out more about American law, and somebody in the Justice Ministry uh, must have figured out or been told that there was this guy in Dusseldorf, which is where he was, who knew something about American law, because it's clear that Nazi discussions drew very heavily on his work. I can tell you more about the story about his life, or we can we can uh, move on from there, if you like. I don't know what's your... Oh, it's, it's fascinating. He No, he's a very fascinating character. It's also interesting to me that he just sort of pops up that way that someone identified him or knew someone who knew someone who knew that he had been to the United States and... and that he I can't tell you exactly how they found the guy, but they found the guy. Yeah, no, please. Uh, and you know, we, we have a, a remarkable transcript of a, of a meeting of the of the Commission, uh, the Criminal Law Reform Commission, drafting what will eventually become the second of the Nuremberg Laws that I talked about before, uh, which begins when the Minister of Justice, Gürtner, presents a memo on American law, uh, which clearly was based on, or in fact probably was, uh, an article later published later that summer by Heinrich Krieger, uh, which reviews American race law in, in great detail. Uh, after that, Krieger went on to uh, publish what's, I, I have to say once again, one doesn't like one to find oneself praising the abilities of Nazi lawyers, but he was a brilliant lawyer. He published a, a really excellent book called Race Law in the United States uh, in 1936, um, uh, which really does deserve a translation. You know, it's, it's a Nazi examining American race law in the 1930s could bring insights to the topic. There were things that he saw. He had really very high-level training, very fine mind. He saw many, many, uh, had many, many um, cogent and revealing things to say about the American race water in the 1930s. Um, thereafter, he seems to have been a fellow who was, you know, had a kind of desire to do ethnography, he got himself off to Africa, where he wrote a couple of books on race law, first in, in Southwest Africa, he, he being German, and then in South Africa, and then ended back ended up back in Germany just in time for the outbreak of hostilities. So he showed up on September 1st, 1939, and fought in the war, and, uh, and then apparently became a, a school teacher after the war. I made some effort to track him down, uh, and, and an advocate of, of European unification and international understanding. How interesting. Amazing story. Um, I wonder if we can if we can just change change gears slightly. Um, there's you have a chapter that's called protecting Nazi blood and Nazi honor. And this goes back to something that you mentioned earlier. But maybe we can we, maybe we can we can put a, a bit more flesh on the bones, uh, which is, um, among other things, the chapter deals with anti-miscegenation law. Right. And you show this fascinating struggle in Germany after 1933 between race radicals in the NSDAP and the Nazi Party 
and sort of people we might call conservative nationalist jurists, or perhaps they were people who were Nazis themselves, but of a less radical variety, um, who represented, let's say, German legal tradition. And the radicals wanted to criminalize marriage between non-Jewish Germans and Jewish Germans, or as they would have said, between Jews and Germans. I wonder if you can tell us about that struggle and perhaps the most alarming piece of it, how American law actually helped the radicals, which is something that you you mentioned a little bit earlier. Sure. So uh, it is indeed the case that there was conflict between the radicals and the and the nationalist conservatives, however you want to uh, to denominate them. Uh, I mean, of course, as long as Hindenburg was president, it was not by any means the case that that, that the that Germany was entirely given over to the Nazi party. There, there was an, uh, a source of authority and a claim to legitimacy for nationalist conservatives, uh, and that really survived for a long time in many ways, but particularly, strikingly, down to the, the Nuremberg Party rally, which produced the Nuremberg Laws in, in September of 1935, uh, which in the, the forgotten Nuremberg Law that I mentioned for the first time established that the swastika was the exclusive flag of Germany. Um, but the nationalist conservatives were there, and in particular Franz Giorgner, who was the uh, minister of justice, was not a member of the party, uh, and he had various colleagues who, as you say, regardless of whether they were members of the party, remained faithful to the, at least in some measure, faithful to uh, the great and honorable traditions of the German legal profession. That is not by any means to say that, that they were anything but reprehensible anti-Semites they were. Uh, nevertheless, they were lawyers, uh, and they, and although they were quite willing to go along with some program of, process, of persecution, rather, um, uh, they insisted that the program of persecution be done according to the established norms of German law. That had many implications. Uh, first of all, it meant that things like the presumption of innocence, for, from that point of view, had to play a role in whatever was done. Um, it also meant that there had to be clear definitions of who counted as a Jew, along with a variety of other clear definitions. Uh, German law, uh, again, a, a remarkable tradition uh, to which thoughtful lawyers still look in many ways um, uh, for, for wisdom. Uh, German law had insisted for, for generations on the fundamental importance of having absolutely clear definitions uh, so that judicial power would not be exercised in an arbitrary way, particularly in criminal cases. German lawyers attached to the traditions of the law also had to be aware of one particularly important fact when it came to anti-miscegenation, which, which is that marriage law was not a matter for criminal law, generally speaking. Uh, although, with some complicated exceptions, the only uh, form of marriage that was subject to criminal prosecution was bigamy. And to these lawyers, the only natural model for any kind of Nazi criminalization of marriage would be drawn from the model of bigamy. Now, the model of bigamy offered what was really only very limited um, uh, sort of scope for the creation of a criminalization of marriage. Uh, that's for the pretty much straightforward reason that most people who enter into bigamous marriages uh, go into them with open eyes. They know perfectly well what they're doing. They've consented. Uh, uh, and for that reason, it's very difficult to criminalize their decision to go into the marriage. After all, from a certain point of view, there's no victim. They both agreed to do it. 
the model, bringing the model of bigamy to bear on the Nazi program was extremely difficult, but that's what the, um, uh, what the conservative lawyers insisted ought to be done if anything were to be done. For the radical lawyer, the radical lawyers wanted something much, much, much far, more far-reaching than that. Uh, they wanted, in particular, a sort of draconian criminalization of any kind of uh, 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 marriage between, uh, as you say, uh, non-Jewish Germans and Jewish Germans, or as they would say, of course, Jews and Aryans. Uh, and for that, it was difficult to find any example because, once again, marriage wasn't criminalized in almost any legal culture in the world. The only legal culture that offered uh, really extensive examples of the criminalization of marriage and harsh criminalization of marriage was the United States. Uh, there were anti-miscegenation statutes in 30 states. Uh, most of them criminalized uh, mixed marriages to some degree. Many of them threatened really, really harsh punishment. Uh, uh, so the statute of Maryland is a, is a familiar example to those who work on this. The statute in Maryland threatened 10 years of imprisonment at hard labor for anybody who entered into a racially mixed marriage. There was nothing like that anywhere else in the world. And when Nazi lawyers uh, gathered to determine what sort of, uh, uh, what sort of law uh, could possibly be introduced into the German criminal code, what eventually became the Nuremberg Laws, the radicals present cited the American law, and they cited it in detail. They discussed the American statutes uh, uh, one by one, uh, state by state. Uh, they had at the meeting that I'm talking about, this is a meeting that took place in early June 1934, for which we have a stenographic transcript, uh, uh, included or circulated at the meeting was a list of all 30 American states, uh, and their detailed interest is really quite stunning. Uh, the Eagerness, as I said before, particularly of the radicals to make use of the American example, is also stunning. Uh, the uh, uh, more traditionalist conservatives show themselves to be very resistant to what America, to the American example. One of the things that, in, in that particular vein, uh, in the vein in which you, the, the, you've just been speaking there, one of the things I found really um, interesting was this notion that German lawyers traditionally operated under the principle of what they called the Grundgedanke, or the foundational idea or the fundamental idea um, and, and the idea of having very strict definitions that you, that you needed to be able somehow to fix race definitionally before you could proceed to write laws about it. And one of the things that I thought was so fascinating about, about your discussion in that chapter was that radical Nazi lawyers found it refreshing, let's say, that American law was totally arbitrary and messy in defining race. And Nazi jurists said, radical ones at least, said, you know, there's this wonderful, refreshing, again, I use the term euphemistically, of course, refreshing primitivity about American law. Yeah. And you give they some amazing examples of places where, um, from various state laws, where different kinds of people are described in radically different ways, even within the, the laws of in, individual states. People are, divide, are are described in, in quite different ways, in ways that, you know, the Germans apparently couldn't, um, was just mind-boggling to them, and yet very useful. Yeah, you bet. I, I mean, it's not just a metaphor. They said primitivity. They, they liked the, the primitivity of American law, uh, and you've described it in exactly the right way. Uh, again, the, the, the standard German doctrine dictated that, particularly when it came to criminal law, uh, it was unacceptable that uh, state power should be exercised unless 
uh, there were clear definitions uh, standing in the background, clear definitions of the offense, clear definitions of the of the nature of, of what sort of person could be accused of the offense. And of course, defining who counted as a Jew was very, very difficult. Uh, and much of the discussion, this is hardly new to my book, but much of the discussion in this period uh, turned precisely on that question. How could one possibly define Jews? Uh, the beauty of the American legal tradition from the point of view of the radical lawyers is that American lawyers just didn't bother with that kind of problem very much. That's something that's still true of American law today, it has to be said. It's what uh, American law didn't bother too much about that sort of thing, as you said, in the statutes. But they didn't just study the statutes. They studied the way the American courts applied the statutes. What they discovered is that when the American courts applied the statutes, they in engaged in a kind of seat-of-the-pants criminalization, which was unimaginable from the point of view of a, of a, of a traditionally trained German lawyer. Uh, and it's what they what they thought was true in America very much much was true of America at the time and still sometimes now uh, when persons came before courts uh, in various American states and some question was raised about whether or not the person was African as the statutes often said or melee they used various uh, various of these terms in the statutes uh, the judges would often make a more or less improvisatory decision about what ought to be done. Um, this, from the point of view of any well-trained German lawyer, is was and is simply shocking. Uh, from the point of view of people like Roland Freisler, who's the, the figure that uh, played the largest role, the radical that played the largest role uh, in, in, in the material that I'm talking about, this was inspiring. It was great. You didn't have to subject yourself to all kinds of traditional norms of legality. You could just go to work. Uh, and they found this, as they said, primitivity, really quite inspiring and talked about it quite a bit. That's amazing. It's, 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 it's really a fascinating, that's really a fascinating thing to me. And particularly as an, as a, as an American historian who teaches German history to American students, one of the things that I always have to explain to them when we talk about Nazi racism is that there are racisms, there are different cultures of race in different parts of the world. And our traditional racisms are different from other people's. And this, the matter of how to define people, how to define people under the Nuremberg laws, um, you know, it's a very difficult thing for my students to wrap their minds around sometimes that um, that there might be a, a, a different way of being racist than the way that Americans have historically been and continue to be racist. Um, I wonder if I on, on a somewhat related note, of course, you made a point earlier about about the incredible harshness of some of the American, um, quote unquote, anti-miscegenation laws. And I thought it was also very interesting and would be interesting to listeners to hear that um, on a number of points, Nazi jurists, even some of the most radical, felt that the American so-called one-drop rule was too harsh. You bet. And not just the American one-drop rule. They certainly found the one-drop rule too harsh. So this is, this is a rule found in some American states, not all. And it's important to say that because sometimes it's described as the universal American rule. It wasn't. Uh, but in some states, a single drop of black blood qualified individual as black from the point of view of the law of the state in question. Uh, other states had less far-reaching definitions. Uh, what's remarkable is that with very, very few exceptions, even the, uh, as it were, mildest definitions to be found in the American states, the least far-reaching uh, uh, definitions were still harsher than what you found in Nazi law. Uh, now, the story is a bit complicated, uh, and perhaps you teach it to your, to your students, but as things emerged after Nuremberg, it was at least possible for persons of half-Jewish descent 
uh, to escape the impact of the Nuremberg Laws, not to be classified as Jews. It's, there's, there are complications in there that, that I can go into if you like, um, uh, but that I won't. In most American states, persons of, of, of half black descent unquestionably counted as blacks. And in many of them, a quarter black descent, one eighth black descent, whatever it might be. Uh, the Nazis never went that far. Uh, they did also, the Nazi literature does in particular talk about the one drop rule, although not so much about the other rules in this, in ways that set, that uh, distinguish their approach from the American approach. But they did indeed find the, the one drop rule very troubling. Uh, I, I have texts which I reproduce in the book in, in which they, they refer to the human hardness of this. How can a person of predominantly white appearance nevertheless be uh, reckoned among that, and then they use the N-word in German. <laughs> I won't use it here um, in an English language broadcast, but they were they were shocked and taken aback by it. It's amazing. Um, you, uh, I wonder if you want to on a on a slightly more let's say um, not to end not to end our conversation, but but maybe at this point we could we could have a note of um, of heroism because this is you know this is in many ways a very dark story, and I think a lot of people will find it. I, I personally didn't find it shocking, but I think there are a lot of people who would. And even if I didn't find it shocking, I found it amazing. Um, but I wonder if you, you know, you dedicate your book to the ghost of Louis B. Brodsky. I wonder if you could tell the readers why he's so meaningful for your work. Yeah, and the copy editor wanted me to get rid of that. She wasn't so sure about it. Oh, I think um, it's great. So Louis B. Brodsky, as, uh, as, like Heinrich Krieger, is another remarkable character who emerges out of all of this. Um, the story of Louis B. Brodsky takes us back in particular uh, to the forgotten Nuremberg Law, uh, the one that established the uh, exclusivity of the, of the swastika flag as the German flag. Um, uh, Brodsky was a, an American Jew, and it's worth emphasizing the truth of something that Nazi commentators knew, which is that life wasn't necessarily all that easy for Jews in the United States either. Yeah. Uh, he was uh, really quite a remarkable guy. He he graduated from NYU Law School at the age of 17, which astonishes me, I have mm. to say, uh, um, and then tried to make his way. But as was the case in the U.S., I think it's worth emphasizing, down into the 1960s, um, it was very, very difficult for Jews, especially Jews of Eastern European extraction, to make their way into prestigious law firms, judgeships, and so on and so forth. Um, uh, Brodsky took a different route, which was the route often taken by ethnics in New York at the time. Uh, he managed to get the sponsorship of Tammany Hall. Uh, Tammany Hall was, you know, the corrupt Democratic Party organization, uh, undoubtedly corrupt, which often uh, served the interests of ethnic minorities and often placed people in government positions. And he got himself placed in a position as a police court magistrate in the tombs. And the tombs were a detention or a detention facility in southern Manhattan, uh, downtown Manhattan. Um, and being a magistrate in the tombs is, is not the highest class job uh, a judicial officer could ever have, to put it mildly. Um, but nevertheless, Brodsky made the most of this. He was actually quite a well-known figure uh, in New York at the time. In particular, he was a great civil libertarian. And he issued things you would expect Supreme Court justices to issue about pornography and public nudity and all kinds of things like that. You have to love the guy, you know, making the most of the opportunities New York gave him uh, at the time. Brodsky, uh, but his job mostly didn't involve issuing great judicial opinions or anything like that, of course. His job was to, sit, uh, was to preside at bail hearings and night court and things like that. 
His job in particular involved deciding whether or not to release persons who have been arrested in various circumstances, and some persons were arrested in a particular circumstance. This involves the international incident that gave that triggered the Nuremberg Laws, the so-called Bremen Affair, the Bremen Incident. The, the Bremen was uh, the best-known German ocean liner of the period. It was faster than any other ocean liner. The Germans were a Hapag Lloyd ship, for those who know these things. Uh, uh, it was the pride of Germany. and uh, The Bremen was docked in New York in the summer of 1935, uh, flying the swastika flag. Uh, there was a riot, as the New York police report said, led by communists, uh, in the course of which uh, a bunch of the rioters climbed on board the ship, uh, tore down the flag and threw it into the Hudson River. Five of them were arrested, and this became a coastline. At the time, the, the German press was very exercised. Uh, uh, the Roosevelt administration, which at the time was doing everything it could to maintain good relations with the Third Reich, uh, did everything it could to prevent this from exploding. Uh, and, but without more than tentative success... Uh, things really came to a head, though, uh, when the five rioters were brought before Louis B. Brodsky, who released them, as far as I can tell, on, on, with no good legal grounds whatsoever, while issuing uh, an opinion, which, of course, he really had no authority to issue, uh, describing Nazism perfectly correctly as a form of barbarism <laughs> and saying many justifiably nasty things about the Nazis. Um, this uh, led to an explosion on the German side, as you might imagine. Uh, and in particular, we know from uh, Goebbels' diary that it was in response to this opinion by Brodsky that Goebbels decided to call the Reichstag to Nuremberg so that uh, the swastika flag should be declared as the sole flag of Germany and in addition, of course, uh, that what we now call the Nuremberg Laws should be promulgated. Um, all in response to Louis Brodsky, <laughs> this, uh, um, uh, this not an... New York Jewish lawyer who had led a life of something other than full advantage in the United States, it has to be said. So I, I'm, I'm a great admirer of Louis Brodsky, and in wondering what to do with the book, although I never met the man <laughs> or any of his descendants, if there are any, I decided to dedicate it to his ghost. I thought it was lovely. I thought it was wonderful that you did that. You know, we've taken up quite a lot of your time, and I wonder if, if you have time for just one more question. Oh, with pleasure. Um, you end by saying that the story you tell, the connections you draw between American and German law in the 1930s needs to be a part of our national narrative. And I could not agree more. And I think that your book is especially timely because I think that a lot of people are thinking more about um, a, critical, a critical look at American history and how, how incredibly important it is to be able to look with clear eyes at our own nation's history and particularly its racial past and present. So I wonder if you would say something a little bit, if you'd say a little bit about um, how you hope this might become a part of our national narrative. Um, what, what do, what would you like for people to take away most, most powerfully from your work? Uh, sure. So uh, the book did turn out to be more timely than I had hoped or expected <laughs> to mm. say. Um, I think I, I, I turned in the, um, uh, the proofs the day before election day. But anyway, there wow. you have it. Um, uh, but at any rate, uh, um, I think I would say that it, it belongs to our national narrative. I would like to say that it should belong to our national narrative in two respects. First, as a matter of American history, but also as a matter of American law, if you'll let me talk about that too. Uh, in, in part, I, the book just, I hope, brings home 
as you said, just how deep and powerful the uh, drive toward racial subordination has been in the United States. Uh, you know, that's something we would know regardless of whether we knew this story or not. And I think also it's something that's increasingly emphasized by American historians. I, I think in particular of the Alan Taylor books uh, and the Oxford History of the United States and the, and the Howe book on the Jacksonian era. These are really wonderful books that, mm -hmm. that put the focus very dramatically on, uh, uh, well, let's just call it the history of white supremacy because that's what Americans called it themselves. Yes. Uh, uh, this history of white supremacy is is something that makes most of us, but I'm afraid not all of us, uncomfortable. But it's very, very important that we should remember it, uh, partly for the very straightforward reason that it's not, isn't all over yet, that history. We still see an awful lot of this. I, I won't, I've had some conversations that I don't particularly, that it's not appropriate to repeat now after publishing this book with people who are uh, very eager to see a revival of American white supremacist traditions. Mm. Um, if the story is important, it may be particularly important because of our, I think, in many ways, natural tendency to think of, of the Nazi experience as qualitatively different, which, of course, in the 1940s it became, right. but as, as qualitatively different such that none, no other uh, tradition could possibly be compared uh, with with that of the Nazis, I think our tradition not only has to be compared with it, it has to be, it was in many ways a kindred tradition, as you see from the material in this book. And because Nazism looms so large in our thinking of the history of racism, that's got to affect our thinking about how much the white supremacist tradition matters in the United States. The, the other thing that I would like to emphasize has to do with the law once again. What the Nazis liked about American law didn't have to do just with American racism. It had to do with that primitivity that we were talking about. They didn't just praise it. The radicals didn't just praise American law for being primitive. They praised it for being political. They praised American legal culture or American society for being a society in which uh, the traditional lawyers' ways of thinking things didn't put obstacles in the way of radical political programs like their own. That is true of American law, and I want to say that it remains true of American law. And it remains true of American law in particular in one area that I've written about, including comparative material with Germany uh, uh, elsewhere. That's in American criminal justice. If you look at American criminal justice, you still see a lot of the same pattern that seems so thrilling, if I can use the word, to radical Nazis like Roland Freisler, that is, American politicians run much more successfully on tough-on-crime programs than politicians elsewhere do. We tolerate the election of judges on tough-on-crime programs and prosecutors on tough-on-crime programs. This is stuff that tra traditionally trained German jurists would reject out of hand as obviously unacceptable in any system uh, 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 committed to the rule of law. But we had it then, and we have it now. So I, I hope that bringing home how much that aspect of American law could seem inspiring to radical Nazis will do something to to shake up our commitment to the way Americans do things as a matter of law, as well as our understanding of American history. I, I really hope that you're right about that. Um, and in conclusion, I'd like to say that uh, in, in addition to, to these um, really gripping themes that James Whitman explores in this very important book, there is also some great storytelling between the covers, some impressive reconstructions of very complicated debates about the law and about society. There are some heroic and, of course, some very nefarious characters 
involved and there's there's so much more besides so if i could just we're going to close now and i'm i'm going to say goodbye to you uh professor whitman but i want to thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today i'm sure everyone will be very interested not only to listen to our conversation at least i hope they will be but also to read your book thank you oh i thank you